Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. What up? You're listening to Champagne Sharks. I'm Vita Starr. And on this episode, we are speaking with Myron Clay Gilmore. He is a husband, a father, a vet, and a PhD candidate at the University of Edinburgh. Welcome, Myron Clay Gilmore. Greetings. Greetings. I like that. Just real real, real quick to the point. Greetings. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like a professor. Greetings. Okay. Um, So, Myron is here to talk to us about Black Male Studies. Um, There's a lot of conversations um, I've seen online about it. I've seen some articles about it. Mostly misinterpretations, a lot of disrespect towards Black men, really, when they're dissing the, the, the studies, or the idea of even having studies, Black male studies. Not even just the fact that there is Black male studies. The idea of having it itself has been problematic for some people. And a lot of misconceptions, misunderstandings, um, some purposeful, some maybe not purposeful. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But it's important that we do understand Black male studies, why it's important, and what other ideas, concepts, beliefs, philosophies, theories that run counter to it that are actually problematic for Black men and for the Black community. So I wanted to talk to Myron about that because he talks about it, he studies it, he writes about it. Um, he's someone I admire. I see him on Twitter going in on folks. He has, People say I have patience on Twitter. I don't have as much as people think. Myron has some patience. He literally be explaining it academically. I just get tired of people's shit and tell them they full of shit. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> they do be full of shit. Like, they're not really trying to debate yeah. you with any quality arguments. They're trying to be cynical. They're trying to be assholes. Um, but Myron actually explains shit, which I think is very helpful for people because there are those of us who don't know, and I don't really engage in too many debates on the topic because I don't know enough about it, but I do admire um, people like you, um, the author of the, of, of the Man Not, by uh, which is Tommy Curry. I really respect him and his work. I respect, uh, we've had... Um, I believe we've had him on here before. I wasn't part of Champagne Sharks yet, but I do believe he's been on before. Um, There's a few other people that I respect in this area that study this. And I really wanted to make sure our listeners had an opportunity to learn more as well. So, Myron, can you tell us a little bit about what Black Male Studies is and why it is something that should be incorporated in all of our academia as Black people? Uh, so Black male studies is basically a new way. It's a new paradigm. It was introduced in uh, Tommy Curry's book, The Man Not. And basically what it tries to do is give you this explanatory framework that's grounded in like empiricism, history, sociology, and evidence to explain the different kinds of subordination that Black men experience and as a result, the entire Black community experience. So you're looking at all these different population level markers, uh, low life expectancy, 
low employment rates, high unemployment rates, incarceration, et cetera. And basically what we uh, are trying to do is articulate a framework that allows you to explain that without mistaking Black men for the actual consequences of their environment or what they suffer, right? So, because a lot of theories basically are going to tell you they go through this because they're defective. So it's a way to explain um, the context of Black men without blaming the population group for the outcome. And what's interesting is, even in my experience, I feel like when I was in college and I had to study gender theory or um, really wasn't even gender, it was gender studies, I think we called it, gender studies, um, feminism. I think I took feminist studies. I think I dropped that class, not because of the content. I think I dropped it because I I wasn't going to pass that shit. But <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I do remember reading it and realizing they didn't differentiate much between white men and non-white men in the circumstances that they're in. Now, what they did do was talk about Black feminism to some degree. They talked about the people that they liked. They talked about Bell Hooks. And that was pretty much the gist of my Black feminist studies. Um, and Audre Lorde, I'll say, as, as well. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, Black feminism. Yeah, Black feminism studies. But it was interesting because I felt like there wasn't much of a differentiation between what Black families were experiencing and what white families were experiencing. I watched a lot of old TV shows, such as The Jeffersons or All in the Family and uh, Maud. Um, all these shows are part of the same group. Uh, Good Times are all Norman Lear shows. And I think they're all spinoffs of each other in some way. And in watching those shows, they portray Black women as being in the same boat as white women. And they portray Black men as being as aggressive and loud as the white men, right? So if you look at All in the Family, I don't know if you've ever seen it. You're fairly young, so I don't know if, I don't know if you've ever seen it. But... um. Do you know what All in the Family is? Myron? I think, I think so. Is so, it uh, is it with the uh, the guy uh, with the glasses? Is that the one? Is that no, one? it's Archie Bunker, and he's oh, a see, look, white look. guy. Yeah, I don't know who yeah, you're talking know. about, but <laughs> no, he's an yeah, old white. Know. He's like an older white guy, older like upper middle aged white guy, um, mm-hmm. gray hair, kind of balding. He has this chair you would always sit in. He's this hyper racist white guy. He he was racist, sexist, homophobic, anything you could think of. He was all of them. Um, but he represented like the working white man and he was real mm-hmm. derogatory. He had a daughter who was liberal, who married a man who was a, a college student. Um, they're both, I think they were both in college, but the husband was in college and he was a young white liberal, you know, and him and the dad would go at it all the time. And then he mm-hmm. had this, you know, and the middle-aged guy was married to this dingbat wife who was just, who he called a dingbat and disrespected her a lot. So, but it's it's a comedy. It's supposed to like raise political awareness. They talk about topics that weren't really talked about at the time. It's a seventies show. Um, they talk about racism and all these things. They even, I mean, they try to get as deep as they can, you know, for a white show in the seventies. But um, I noticed that in shows like that, as well as in Good Times, as well as in The Jeffersons, all the men are loud and bully the women that they're with. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Good Times, have you seen Good Times? Yeah, I've seen clips. Yeah. <laughs> how old are you <laughs> 29 <laughs> yeah you're a baby over here um i mean not that i'm old enough when i wasn't born when those shows were out but i watched a lot of reruns and i still watch these shows mostly because mm-hmm. i'm i like the 
get the I had to learn about the messages people were getting back in the day. But in good times, James is always yelling at his wife, right? Wouldn't mm-hmm. let her go back to work because, you know, he had a lot of he's like, no one minds going to work, you know, that kind of shit. It wasn't really to me, it wasn't that realistic. But um even in the Jeffersons, I don't, I don't know if you ever seen the Jeffersons, but he's always yelling at his wife. So they always frame women as being less than the man in the eye, in the man's eyes. So whether it was the white show doing it or a black show doing it, in fact, they were often trying to portray the Jeffersons as being two sides of the same coin almost. Except mm-hmm. one's black. And the black right. people are rich. The white people are not, right? They're working class. <clears throat> I think he's like a forklift driver or something or works in a warehouse or something. The white guy. So I've always looked at these stories and I've always seen these portrayals and I've always wondered what was, how are black families looking at this in the reality, right? So you're looking at this program, but in reality, that might not reflect your reality. I don't know. I can't, I wasn't around back then, but I can't say that black men were equal to white men and how they treated their wives but that's often the portrayal. So, but they do that to make it look like black women and white women have the same exact problems. Right. So I'm right. interested in your take on that. Like how do portrayals like this, and I'm sure that's not the only one, maybe you've seen some in your life or examples in TV or whatever. For sure. How, do, how does this portrayal cause problems and rifts within the black community? If black women and white women are supposedly under the same type of male oppression. Uh, I think what it ended up doing is uh, it basically demonizes black men even further. And I think it causes f- extra fractures within the community. Um, because when you look at the evidence for, for these types of things, even the ideal of a nuclear family, uh, the political attitudes, the ideas about male leadership, when you look at the uh, survey data on this, black men and black women agree a lot more, and this is going back to the 70s. So the GSS uh, General Social Survey data uh, looked at by the 70s by Dr. Rudy Lee Gooley at first, and uh, yeah, Rudy, Rudy Lee Gooley, and then going forward to the early 2000s, it's a clear pattern of black men and black women having basically similar ideas, you know, basically similar ideas, where white men and white women also have similar ideas and they are not the same, right? One is opposed to the other. So it's very uh, divisive, I think. I think it's just, it, that's the plane of it. It just gets very divisive. And so you start to look at Black men as this internal oppressor, or like that uh, that article that came out a couple of years ago as the white people and Black people. And you started seeing these kind of analogies that are just really unhelpful, really unhelpful to the entire community. And if, you, if you're trying to understand what Black people are going through, it's going to completely confuse you. I feel like it's important that we recognize what these things look like. That's why I'm talking about TV shows and all that. I want people to know what we're talking about before we get into the academics of it. Because people are looking at it every day and don't know that's what they're seeing. They don't realize they're being conditioned. Because that's how conditioning works for all of us. None of us are exempt, right? We're all conditioned by things we're not realizing in our conscious mind half the time. It's almost like it's in passing. Because sometimes... It's just been so normalized for us, right? So if you see the right. same images over and over and over again, you start to think it's reality. That's one of the dangers of the internet. That's why those algorithms are so dangerous to me, right? So if yeah. you start to see the same stories over and over and over again of black men treating 
black women fucked up, black women treating black men fucked up. You see that so much, you'll start to think this is what reality is. And it conditions right. your thinking. What are some other ways that we can see the dynamics of demonizing black men in relation to black women? What are some other ways that you've observed? Uh, I think domestic violence is another one um, that mm-hmm. gets brought up a lot. So there's this idea that domestic violence within the black community is basically the same in the white community, right? There's male uh, uh, perpetrators and female victims. And the interesting part is it doesn't work that way at all. Um, whether it's poor white people, particularly poor white people, there's something called bi-directionality, which means both parties within a relationship take part in it. And the violence happens cyclical. So one person agitates the other and another person responds in another way that's also negative. And you see this uh, in studies with the black community, like all the time, like some of the major studies have identified being black or the black race is a predictor of bidirectional violence. It's not something that is common in other communities, but in ours, it's, it's very prevalent. It's very prevalent. But I think domestic violence is another one because you just get this view of men oppressing women categorically. Yeah, I think sexual abuse is another one. And I think with the article that you shared on Twitter, and I want people to find it, you have an article that you actually um, referenced around sexual abuse and the fact that we don't even see boys as victims. We don't even see, we don't even consider boys having to learn and understand um, safety of their bodies, but expect them to understand the safety of other people's bodies. And mm -hmm, Go ahead. No, yeah, that study, uh, they were referencing a study uh, done at Johns Hopkins. And there was a guy who studies adolescent uh, behavioral patterns. And he referenced another study. I think the sample size was like 13,000 children. And then three quarters of the boys who were sexually assaulted, half of the perpetrators were other girls. You know, Mm -hmm. children, not even adults, but other children. And they were Mm -hmm. girls. And we just don't have a framework to explain that at all. I was looking at another... uh, Black male study scholar, Dr. Adebayo Ogunbre. And he had a, uh, he referenced a study from the early 2000s. Um, and it basically said one out of six Black boys before the age of 16 were reported to have already been sexually molested. You know, and there's just that. no, yeah, we just have no framework to understand this. Yeah, I've actually gotten into discussions um, with other women around sexual abuse and one of the things that I always try to bring up is the sexual abuse of boys, is partic- in particular Black boys. People don't want to talk about it. They want to yeah. keep portraying the conversation as Black men or men in general, but specifically Black men are all predators and women are all victims. But we don't talk about the reality of a lot of this stuff, right? right. Sexual abuse between children is actually very common. Sexual abuse between uh, child cousins is actually very common. And people don't talk about that as well. Um, a lot of it is because we don't talk about sex and we don't talk about our bodies. We don't talk about safety. We don't talk about violence at an early age. We, we It's like we're afraid, not just us as Black people, I think as a, as a culture and a society. Yeah. yeah. I think we struggle with that. Um, I think a lot of parents don't want to touch it. I think part of the reason people don't want to talk about it is their own traumas. So I actually teach trauma-informed care. And one of the things that you learn when you're studying this is that sometimes people are triggered by the children that they're talking to. 
especially if certain situations come up that they've experienced. So if you talk about, for example, I had a mom, I was teaching at a, at a DV shelter and I had a mom, <clears throat> uh, she was Latina and she was talking about like her situation with her 13 year old daughter. Her 13 year old daughter triggers her because that was the age that she got abused as mo- when that's the age the mom got abused. It was 13. So right. her little, her daughter wants to wear some short shirt shorts She's flipping out on the daughter. The daughter has no clue why she can't wear short shorts. She doesn't get it, right? She doesn't understand why her mom is flipping out about whatever she wears or flipping out at, you know, the boy she wants to hang out with. The kid doesn't get it. They haven't lived long enough to even know that there are certain dangers out there sometimes. But the mom is flipping out because she's triggered. So imagine how hard it is for that same mom to talk about sexual abuse and sexual violence with her daughter. So I think sometimes we just, we're, we're afraid to talk about those things because of our own traumas. Sometimes things happen to us as children that we don't even acknowledge, that we don't even want to talk about. So I think it gets hard. It's so hard that I think we, we have, like, I won't say we have to, but what some people do is they create a different framework. So instead of talking about it the way it should be talked about, we have to say, well, all men are perpetrators. For right. some it's reason, just simple. Yeah, yeah it's, it's simple. We can, we can just stick with that. Versus, no, my children need to understand the safety of their own bodies so they can also protect themselves and others. So they don't also don't become curious with someone else's body, right? right? Or sometimes we don't talk about this too. Adults have hurt children and then those children have normalized sexual abuse to the point where they start abusing other children. I don't even think they always realize that's what they're doing. Yeah. I'm working with children that's, for that's, 20 years. That, Go ahead. That's the bad part about this. Though. That's the bad part about this, I think, because victimization predicts perpetration later on. So uh, what we end up doing is reducing things down to the sexual organ of the person. Instead of realizing that we're probably dealing with somebody who's been traumatized before and did not have the access to treatment. That's probably what we're dealing with, you know? Right, exactly. Didn't have access to treatment, didn't have access to support, wasn't believed, right? Right. Wasn't protected. So, you know... These are real conversations, and it's not male or female, right? Right. Mothers and fathers have dismissed their child's abuse. I can tell you, I can listen, I can go story after story of children I know that were getting whooped and beaten because they were acting up in school only to find out they they were being abused. I mean, the beating and everything is already abuse, but I mean, finding out that your child has been sexually abused after the fact. And they're acting out. Yeah, and they're acting out, right? Right. But you yeah. want to beat them because they're not sitting down in class, but they feel triggered every time the teacher gets close to them. And you don't understand yeah. why. And nobody's even yeah. looking at it. They just say, oh, this kid is just... That's, and if we're being very specific, which is why black male studies is so important, we know this happens to black boys more than any other group. Right. Their behaviors are dismissed as character traits, not Correct. results of a situation. Very powerful stereotypes. Very powerful types. I mean, I was just reading a study earlier today about stereotypes going back to slavery. You got public health scholars that tie this stuff back to, to literally chattel slavery uh, with mm. negative consequences for the entire group from employment, education, um, college environments. You're talking about the group that's least likely to graduate high school. And if mm-hmm. they make it to college, they're least likely to graduate college. Um, and you have public health scholars who are connecting this literally to how uh, African-American males in particular viewed as lazy, unintelligent, aggressive. Uh, they cited one study uh, saying that as early as five, this has been tracked as black, on black boys as early as five, they had teachers sit in a room 
and look at the children's posture and, and how they walk around and the boys who exhibited a swagger with the uh, participants registered as a swagger or some type of cool pose that was tied to them pointing those children out for negative behavior. Yes. Right. And, and then you get them overrepresented in uh, special education classes as a result. Right? Yes. They can't learn. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. No, that's absolutely true. And it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. I've witnessed this happen. I've, I've been working with kids for 20 years, both in schools, with families directly, and various other ways, right? This is something that has been um, documented for years, especially during that era when, <clears throat> when um, I'm not the biggest Obama fan, but I will say this. Um, when Eric Holder was attorney general, <clears throat> one of the things he did was highlight that school to prison pipeline. He put that memo out and that memo referenced a lot of studies that <clears throat> addressed the fact that black children, black boys in particular, are literally being funneled into the prison system. And here is how, right? One of right. those ways is how we treat boys starting in preschool, starting in preschool. Yeah. They've preschool. already, and, it, yeah. and the, this is the scariest part. It didn't matter the race of the educator. Hmm. Black female teachers, it was mostly women, but black right. women teachers were doing the same thing. They had the same beliefs about the children. They tried to predict, well, which kid is going to do something that's going to misbehave? And the prediction is usually right. they found they were choosing the black children, black boys, right? right. And, that's not to, and, and by the way, I, wanna, I have to say this, people don't understand conversations sometimes. This does not dismiss the issues that black girls face. We have all types of things of that we dealt with, you know, as a black female, as a black girl, um, there are a lot of things I dealt with. You know, I was raised by a black man. I was raised by a single father. I was only female in my house. There were definitely issues that came up because of that. Right. But I also understood and I, at least I understand now there were resources my father didn't have, didn't have access to because he was a black man. Right. right? right. Um, right. There were resources that um, because people dismissed his behaviors as well. And just so he's just got an anger issue. Not the yeah. fact that he's been traumatized all his life, right? Not the fact that his father was traumatized all his life. My dad was an abusive alcoholic. His father was an abusive alcoholic. His father was an abusive alcoholic. Yes, my great-grandfather was also an abusive alcoholic. My great-grandfather was also in World War I. My grandfather was also in World War II. And, oh, both, of them had, yeah. and both of yeah. them had to walk to school and walk home looking at dead bodies hanging from trees that look like them. So how right. can you raise a healthy family in that situation? How can yeah. you raise your son to control his anger and you have all these trauma responses? But we don't talk about the past down trauma that black men face. It's like you said earlier, we look at the results. We'll say, well, these, this is just inherent. What's interesting is there's all these studies that show epigenetics that show how trauma is passed down social, social learning theory and things like that, right? Right. Yeah, I was looking at one uh, last week and they were talking about peer-to-peer -peer homicide and the epidemic of Black males uh, experiencing suicide and homicide, basically just premature death, which mm -hmm. is a public health crisis, yes. you know, especially between the ages of 15 and 25. Um, and part of the, the reasoning that the authors gave was that there's been this dismissal of these people's, of this uh, population group's humanity. Yes. And so through, through these stereotypes that we're talking about, these in, end up influencing public health policies and criminal policies and police policies, right? So how do we deal with angry black men? We throw them in jail, right? They get out of line, we throw them in jail. 
So if they don't master internalizing their own pain and they take it out on somebody else the wrong way, there's an empty prison cell waiting for them. And we know what comes from imprisonment of any human being. It's not a positive experience, you know? And that's what bothers me so much about many of these conversations is that they're not, they're unserious. They're not real. What I mean by that is they'll say something like, well, Black men need to fix it. Black men just need to stop doing this thing. And you're like, that's not how things work. That's not how people work. There have to be circumstances. There have to be policies that are conducive to those changes. But we can't lock people up. We can't traumatize children continuously, right? Punish them for their trauma. Lock them up for their trauma, which is more trauma. Exactly release them, and then expect to not have a traumatized person walking around, right? Even if they don't get locked up. I don't care if they fucking go to college. That doesn't stop the trauma. No. You know what I mean? No. And I think that's this. Definitely not. But I think that there's no conversation about why we see what we see. Because if we start to look too deep, if we start to apply some of the stuff that even, even that I teach around trauma-informed care, if we start applying it, then you have to start making some other changes. And I don't think people want to make those changes because too many pockets exactly are lines. That's exactly what it is. That's why you see black male studies scholars like looking at uh, what we call ecological models of violence or population level uh, models of violence where, you know, like, uh, like I was saying about domestic violence, there's not a unidirectional nature to this violence. There's not a single perpetrator. Um, you see it in boys, like young boys, so if you look at the uh, Dr. Stacy Patton, the, she does this her. literature review all the time. And she'll post up the stats about how black boys are the number one victims in the black community of uh, neglect and childhood uh, homicide, right? And the perpetrators are the mothers. Now, from a black male studies perspective, that doesn't uh, license us to go and blame black women for being an agent of violence in the black community. Right. That's not that's not the way violence works. Right. What's happening are broader social conditions that are, you know, basically ripping apart family bonds and causing violence to happen within the home. Right? Yes. That's where we want to look. Right. We don't want to blame the gender of the perpetrator. That's that's not how you get to the root of the issue. It's not conducive to progress. No, that's the thing. But these people don't want progress. Let's just be honest. Yeah. I'm talking academics, I'm talking these journalists, yeah. I'm talking these politicians that spit this nonsense. Because this, is, this isn't this is just Twitter. People think it's just Twitter, which I thought yeah. it was too until I started reading these articles. And I was like, wait a minute, they're pushing this information. They don't, they're not, they're not real about progress because they want to spend time blaming people. And then you see right. people responding, well, this is, they'll respond with equal, something equally as ridiculous towards black women. And they say, well, this is what black women do. And I'm just like, well, wait a minute. Are you against this bullshit or not? You can't perpetrate the bullshit and then say you're against the bullshit. Are you against it or not? I don't give a fuck who's doing it. Because you're right. When you start doing that blame game shit, you're not talking about progress. You're just talking about blaming. And that's, that's pointing the finger does what? Who has it helped in our community to point the finger at black men or point the finger at black women? Nobody. It helps no one. That doesn't mean we have to deny the things that happen at the hands of women or deny the things that happen at the hands of men. But how can we heal and move forward if all we're doing is pointing fingers? How do we make changes? How do those of us who are understanding this stuff, those of us who are um, educated, I don't mean educated academically like in a school, I mean educated on this topic, educated on understanding like, hey, 
I don't want to pass this down to my children. How can we become more involved in, in the in making change versus these people who are in these other positions? Is that even possible right now? Because it seems like these other people in these gender studies and feminist studies departments are taking over, to be honest with you. Yeah, it seems like they just want to profit off the pain. I mean, that's what all the institutions mm. are structured to do, profit off of Black people's pain. And mm. I mean, that's exactly what's happening. And it's, the, and it's the Black people we're talking about that are not present when these conversations are happening. They don't allow present. us in the room. They kick yeah, us out. We're not even there. Yeah, we're not even <laughs> on these campuses and they're coming up with these theories that white people don't even use on themselves anymore. You know, you look at the, the genealogy of a lot of these ideas, and a lot of them come from 70s era feminist literature that are, so, are social work models that even white people don't use among each other. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, I read a study last year, on it, it said intersectionality, right? And it was, uh, it was based in the UK, uh, Wales, and I believe Scotland in particular. So they're looking at different patterns of gender inequality and the authors never blame even middle-class white men. They do not call middle-class white men patriarchs. And they use evidence of their a patriarch uh, uh, orientation as what them helping how, What does that mean? What is a patriarch orientation? Or the, the opposite of patriarch, egalitarian okay. orientation, right? So the egalitarian orientation of these men was evidenced by the fact that they help their wives with child care around the house, um, they help them financially. These are this is evidence to the whites, to the contemporary white scholar that even middle class white men are not oppressors of middle class white women. Mm. You do not see that tone or approach used if you use that term intersectionality within American based literature. And it's such a narrow way to look at things too, if you're only looking at it like, oh, these people good, these people bad, right? right. Men good, women, I mean, uh, men bad, women good. Men have more power and are bad. Women have no power and are angelic, right? Right. There's, right. These are very narrow binaries. I have a problem with most binaries, to be honest with you, or, or dichotomies or whatever you want to call it, where there's two sides to something. Because usually that's not, it's, right. I look at it like this. There's more than two sides to anything. We only acknowledge two sides half the time. But I'll give you an example. Um, whenever I teach parenting classes, right? So I teach trauma-informed, mm-hmm. nonviolent parenting. And whenever I talk to people about it, they start saying, in fact, you probably even seen it when I talked about that movie, Lean On Me, which is this really terrible movie. Um, terrible educator it, throughout the whole movie, but he's bullying Black children, so nobody cares, including Black people don't care, which is wild to me. But what's funny to me is the reaction to... And when I say, well, this isn't the way to teach children or this isn't the way to treat your children or, you know, you don't have to scream and yell at them and beat them and all that stuff. Then they'll say, oh, so you think whispering and throwing flowers is going to work? <laughs> like, that's right. there's, there's a whole other way to, to look at this. It doesn't right. even have to be, well, you know, you, you it, like... I think we live in a very Eurocentric perspective or Eurocentric way of thinking where everything has to be crime and punishment. It's one way or the other, right? Right. Um, We have this belief that that's how we treat each other. That's how we treat our children. That's the system we've been suffering under as black people is this idea. There's good, there's bad. The law is good. You're bad if you don't follow the law and you must suffer, right? If you follow what we say, then you will be rewarded. And this is how we treat our children, right? There's another way to do things. You don't have to use punishment or rewards. You really don't. 
but that we don't see it that way. So what I teach is, hey, there's a whole other way. Why not have them? How do we how do we get intrinsic motivation? Right. Instead of dangling a carrot like, hey, you get 20 bucks for every A you get. How about what is it that will make you feel good and be proud of your own achievements? Right. But we don't yeah. talk about it that way. So I think a lot of times as 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 people, as black people in particular, we fall in un- under this idea that things can only be one way or the other. Either men are good. I mean, men are bad and women good. Or you're saying men are good. Women are bad. You, you're only saying one or the other. And that's not true. Right. Right. I mean, you see that you see that as the response to a lot of uh, the conversations I try to have with people about black male studies. Like they hear like if I criticize a feminist logic or a feminist tenet, they hear me saying I'm against fi- I'm against women. So to be against <laughs> feminism is to be against women. Um, and so if you're anything pro male, it's anti woman. Right. right. It's just, it has to be one or the other. It's always very, like you said, dichotomous. And it's just not helpful at all. It's not. It's very essentialist. Um, and that's a problem with it. So uh, like you look at genocides, you know what I mean? You see female perpetrators, genocides. You see the majority of victims in genocides are, are victims of death or males and young boys. You, know, you can't capture the fact that the Rwandan genocide was they have female perpetrators, like women who are in charge. Right. And targeting boys because they were boys of the opposite group. Mm-hmm. You can't capture that type of nuance if you start off with the tenet or axiom that X is good, Y is bad. It just doesn't work that way. You know, you're only going to lead to more confusion. Let me ask you this. How does black male studies, I don't know if it does or doesn't, but assuming it does, how does black male studies want or believe that progress can be made? How do they believe progress can be made in the black community? Um, so I think what you see is black male studies scholars trying to provide a diagnosis that's based around sociology and like environmental causal factors, right? So you're looking for broader poli- public policy initiatives. And you, I think we're looking at a mass re-socialization or mass push toward re-educating black people in a different type of way to view themselves and the broader community they exist in. That's the, that's the two main things I would say, because with this push in public health, um, you want to see these broader factors that are not intrinsic. We're looking at extrinsic uh, or ex- exogenous factors. So, you know, gun violence is one where, you know, you see the fact that the government has not even studied. The government has barred the ability for scholars to really inquire into the gun violence that's happening into the Black community. So we can have these debates all we want about whose fault it is for black crime and black gangs, but the structures that are in place stop us from solving this problem. We have to turn towards those structures, right? You know what I mean? We can't just keep pointing the finger at each other. I, I agree 100%. And I think it's funny that you bring up guns because that's another conversation I have with people. I'm not anti-gun, but... Um, Because I'm all about, you know, we have to defend ourselves. However, I I get really annoyed with a lot of the conversations around guns because, you know, like in California, it's always a topic because we have pretty strict gun laws and people want to change them or we do change Mm -hmm. them and make them stricter. And um, a lot of people know, uh, well, I don't know how many people know, but a lot of black people know (laughs) that a lot of the gun laws change in California as a result of the Black Panthers. Um, But what I find to be interesting is when we have these conversations around guns, 
no one talks about the fact that we have too many guns in the country. Like we, it's it's insane. It's not so much that, hey, I need to have this right to have a gun as much as the fact that I feel the need that I have to have a gun. Right. But nobody talks about it in that way. What is in what are the bigger pictures? What are the bigger things that are the problem that are causing? The, first of all, all these people in the hood, I'm going to tell you right now, they're not getting um, legal guns. They're not making them. They not, don't have a gun manufacturing plant. Somebody right. bringing them over there. Somebody's profiting right. off of the deaths in our community. Right. We're yeah. dealing with we, we deal with that shit all the time. I live in South Central. We deal with this shit all the time. And it, it angers me because they're kids. These are kids, you know, we all across the country in low income black communities all across the country that have been highly traumatized, that are highly suffering. People are bringing them guns to kill each other. And then we're right. saying it's black men's fault. Yeah, we're blaming children. I mean, in the state of Missouri, I'm from is I think it's the, the uh, country's leader in child homicides um, as of 2019, 2020. And yeah, it's sick. It's sick. And. You know, if anybody knows the the geography of St. Louis, you'll know like the, the city and county districts. All of the guns come from the White County. All of them. They have gun shows every other week. Yeah. You know, we're not producing these things, but they're structural impediments that are stop stopping us from figuring out how to solve these issues because the broader white community has determined that it's not a, it's not their issue. Right, that so and solving it, I think we forget to do that. Solving it, and you said it before, um, solving it means people's money getting cut off. Right. In academia, there's money in this shit, right? right. It's money and spread mm-hmm. nonsense. It's yeah. money in it. Look at all these talking people. Look at all these people in, 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 on MSNBC and all these blog channels that have now become web series and web shows and all that stuff, right? Look right. at who they bring on there. Look at what they're saying. They're making money yeah. off of spreading this nonsense, right? Then, then we think about who's making money off of the policies, right? Who's yeah. making money off of this? If if black men stopped killing each other, if black men stopped, uh, not black, not men, they're children. You said we we're talking about children. Black yeah. children in these communities stop killing each other. That's a lot of people out of a job. That's a lot of people yeah. whose money isn't getting lined, right? Because yeah. yeah. one kid gets killed, another one gets locked up. Correct. For life. Right. You For lose life. Two lives. Right. For life. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really sad. Like um, there's this sociologist, um, Joseph Scott, uh, whose work I like. And he wrote in the 1970s about institutional decimation. And he said one of the main factors, of institutional decimation of the black community was peer to peer homicide because you lose two lives at once. Like you just said. Right. You lose one to the graveyard and you lose another one to the system for life. You know, right. and that type of phenomenon is just taken for granted in the black community. And then think about how that disrupts the family. We know it has lifelong effects on fam- those fa- people's family structures. We know it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's, that's somebody's baby, somebody's brother. So, you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. some that's somebody's everything. And they're gone, whether they're locked yeah. up or they're murdered. Right. But that's what we suffer with. That's what our communities suffer with. And then even if it doesn't happen to us directly in our own families, we live in neighborhoods where it's happening. Right. And then we're around, we're traumatized. We're around other traumatized people. And I, I don't use the word traumatized lightly. I know it's a buzzword nowadays. When I use these, well, most of our listeners know when I use these words, I'm using them very intentionally, right? right. Um, we're living in these communities and we're suffering. But 
sometimes we don't even see it as suffering because it's so normalized. Like, I didn't really know I was growing up in a highly violent community. I mean, it was normal for me. I knew gunshots outside of your school is probably not the best thing ever, right? Literally, the donut shop would get shot up like every other month. Donut shop was right outside my school. I live, you know, I grew up in a very high gang area and I live in my school was in an area where rival gangs were. So mm-hmm. it was a really tough area. And it was so normalized for me. It was like some, oh, the gun, do- the donut shop got shot up. Was like, oh shit again. I mean, that was literally the conversation, yeah. right? Um, and, you know, and I went to school early 2000s. So we're still talking, we're coming off of the heels of all the 90s violence, right? In South right. Central, which I'm sure many people have seen enough movies about. Um, but I always, see, I always had a very sociological perspective to everything. My dad's a sociologist. So some one of those things okay. that, so while he was in school as a single parent, um, he was studying sociology. So I always... He, we would talk about these things all the time. He would have me sit and analyze things from more of a social perspective. And then I'm part of that. I was a part of an organization. Um, shout out to South Central Youth Empowered Through Action. Um, I was a part of a youth organization that we we focused on policy, right? Um, this is what we did. We protested. We had, you know, we won $153 million to fix a lot of the schools in our district. Nice. Yeah, Prop BB campaign. We won that bitch. Anyway, nice. <laughs> um, but that's but that. So I've always had that kind of perspective. So when I hear these, when I hear these women like use their own story of you know whatever they've been through as somehow this is a universal truth about what black men are or what black communities are, I realize that these people don't have a broader perspective. And they're not trying to have one. And these are people in academics. Yeah. And you had to take sociology in most of these fields. Sociology is a requirement. It's a general education requirement in many of these majors. But somehow, they're so focused on their individual circumstances and their friends. Read a lot of these articles. They reference their friends a lot. Right. Right. Yeah, structural determinants are not the issue for them. It's all about political morality. So as Mm. long as my categories that come from my political morality, right, the grand theory, Marxism, feminism, whatever isn't, that ism has to stand up at the end of the day. Every All the evidence that goes against that, it, it just gets thrown to the side. So the structural determinants never get brought up. You know, it's all about causal, call, explaining phenomena at the causal level through individuals, bodies, and genders, you know, and that's the problem um, that I think Black male study scholars take with like classical versions of feminism. Um, but even feminists who are, because there are feminists who are empiricists, Right, who do social science analysis and social science surveys. And we reference their scholarship because it's based on actual evidence, right? So it's not about anti-feminism, pro-feminism. It's just about the principle and what evidence you have to back up your claims. You know, and, and, and in philosophy, like that's why, I, that's, that's kind of my angle. Like it really doesn't matter about the title, you know, who says it, what's the logic behind it? Do we have evidence to to where these things follow or not? You know. So you're you study philosophy. That's what you're getting your PhD in. Um, right. One of the few people I know with a PhD actually getting it in philosophy. <laughs> but what what does philosophy do in conversations like these? Like what? Because my idea of philosophy, at least how I was raised, um, not raised. I wasn't like my parents taught me this, but just how I have perceived philosophy to be 
was a lot of pontificating about nonsense, right? Or pontificating. Because <laughs> when you're in school, they tell you about some white guys in ancient Rome or Greece or some shit pontificating right. about life. And I'm like, my granny say better shit than this, you know? So right. what? <laughs> what is it about philosophy? What is, what is philosophy to you? And how does that perspective, since you're getting educated in it, how does yeah. that perspective or that study relate to any of this? Uh, so, like, I feel like philosophy is so broad and abstract that it makes it applicable to a bunch of things. Um, but really, what it, I think in conversations like this, it allows you to get to a real interrogation of what evidence is being used and whether or not that evidence backs up the claims we want to make, right? So you want to make a claim about Black men are X, well, what kind of evidence should I use to do this? So you brought up one form of evidence, right? Um, oh, I know a guy who did this. Well, that's just one form of evidence, but that's not probably not the best form of evidence to back up the claim that all Black men are X. You know what I mean? So do we want to use an- anecdotal evidence to prove this claim, or do we want to use some type of sociological evidence to prove the claim? And then once you have the evidence, what's the scope and the character of the claim? Is that study, how many people are in that study? You know, how how long ago was that study? Has it been replicated? You know, it's, it's different things about methodology that I think philosophy and logic. I used to tutor logic in undergrad and first first You can logic. tutor and logic? Then, these people sound yeah. crazy out here. Yeah. <laughs> you can tutor these yeah, niggas. Get out here and tutor these niggas in. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, but I used to tutor logic and uh, you can see like it can be very abstract depending on how it's applied. But once you start trying to look at um, history how people make claims, the stakes of people's claims. I think it could be very, it could be very good at clarifying certain things that we often take for granted. Okay. So it's a way of understanding things, discussing things, using, you know, how do we use this information? You can't just have a claim. So in philosophy, it's not just people making a bunch of claims. This is not supposed to be. It's there's a claim, but here's the evidence of how I got, to this claim, right? Here's how right. I concluded that this is what life is or this situation is or the circumstances or how people are, whatever it is, right? I would have never thought of philosophy in that way, but I definitely yeah. think that's an, it's an important, like logic is really important or critical thinking is really important. Yeah. Um, I believe, and this is just my personal theory, you can, you know, uh, look at your own uh, evidence for this if you want. But, you know, I believe that for a lot of black children, critical thinking is beaten out of them, not just by parents, but also by society. You don't question authority. You don't question adults. You're supposed to just go along and get along and you'll be fine. And if you don't, you must suffer. Right. Right. I always tell parents, like when I teach my classes, you know, maybe if we change the way we think about talking back, because the fact that we call it talking back is really based on our own trauma. Let's get slapped the shit out of me because I was quote unquote talking back. And I would get triggered by kids talking back, quote unquote. And then I started asking people, I said, what's wrong with a child questioning you? Maybe they really don't understand what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> right, right. Wash the dishes. Right. Why I got to wash the dishes? It's a good ass question. Why do they have to wash the dishes? That's right. a good. Qu- we don't think about it as a good question because we're so triggered yeah. by it. But why? Right. And I think right. that's something that also philosophy probably does. It gives you like a way to start to really think about the why's. Why am I seeing what I see? And that to me is an important skill because we don't give our children that opportunity to ask why. Because when they do, 
We make them suffer. We go back to that Eurocentric way of of working with our children, not just parents, because I don't want to put this on parents only. It's on all of us that are part of this quote-unquote village, right? That's educators, that's neighbors, that's grandparents, all that, right? Um, I feel it's one of the things that keeps a lot of the nonsense conversations and academics alive is that Black people, we put such a focus on education, quote-unquote, Education being university, you know, go to college, all this stuff. And we don't really equip them with the critical thinking. We, we, we equip them with getting A, past the class. Right. right. Which doesn't really make room for questioning shit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I, that's why, you know, one of the things I very much appreciate about my father, he wasn't, you know, perfect. But one of the things I appreciate is that we were able to question at least certain things. We couldn't question everything, but we could question certain things. We would have debates. Yeah. And I, when I went to college and my major was sociology, that was one of the funnest things for me was that I could debate my professor and not get kicked out of the class like I would get kicked out in high right. school. Because right? <laughs> right. Right. I was disruptive. I was called disruptive in high school. But in college, yeah. it was like, hey, there's another sociologist who says something different. Or I actually don't agree with that because this is what I see in my community and then the professor will go, well, where's your evidence? You can't just have your own evidence. You can't just have your own anecdotal evidence. And I'll say, okay, let me go back and see if there's people talking about this, right? That was one of the beautiful things I did get. But I was already equipped with critical thinking and to challenge certain ideas. If you're not challenged to do that, if you're not taught to do that, a lot of times we don't challenge the ideas. Now, people will challenge you know, representation. Right. There aren't the no black people right. in my class, right? right? Or my yeah. educator is not black. Or, but when it comes to the actual content, we stop. We we stop. We we stop at representation. We don't right. go into the or content. We get into personal squabbles, right? Or we do. Oh, I, well, she, I just don't like her. I don't like that person. Well, <laughs> may, maybe it's bigger. Maybe they have a point that's worth investigating. You know, right? Um, and that's another thing I think philosophy can do as well. It, it can be edifying, you know. It could be a subjective, uh, you know, because there is a brand, There's branches of philosophy and existentialism and things like that. Um, but even even existentialists, even the more well, hey, what's an existentialist? I don't know what that is. Uh, it's like a branch of philosophy that's more concerned with subjective feelings, uh, how you feel on the inside. Um, trying to explain your own individual experience in relation to the rest of the society. Um, and that, yeah, I think so it's about your personal existence. Is that what existentialism right. is? The word exist existentialism is existence. Right. right. About your personal existence and how you, how you experience reality. Consciousness okay. Reality, right. Okay. So, you know, that's one aspect of it, but even from that angle, I mean, th- there's still ways to work in the broader context where, you know, some a lot of these theories that uh, you find us responding to, they come from literary theory. And mm. I mean, you can just write a book about when what happened when you was 14. You know what I mean? If you want to go to study English and you could just anecdotes are fine. I mean, anecdotes are the basis of an ent- can be an entire corpus. And, but you can't English. stop there. That's my only thing. That's the problem. Right. You, and then you can't there. make your anecdote universal. Right. It can't be a theory. You know what I mean, right? You can't ever uh, elevate that to the basis of a theory about to explain phenomena. You know what I mean, outside of that, and that's the right. problem. You know, we have having uh, a problem with scope. So you get people who, you know, they 
get a bunch five anecdotes, and then that's the evidence for an entire theory to explain, you know, these broad things that that happen in the world. And when you, I mean, just a cursory reading of the empirical literature it just doesn't right. work that way, you know. Right. And I I think it's important that when we talk about things like black male studies, that we understand that it's, you know, taking a broader perspective of something that people have really individualized and taking it broader and saying, wait a minute, there's a bigger picture here. You can't just stop here at this anecdote of black male on uh, black male violence. Right. You have to take it bigger. You have to take it bigger than just, um, you know, black boys who are who don't like dark-skinned girls, right? Right. Um, right? You have to take it broader than that. It's almost mm-hmm. nonsensical how some of these conversations go. And I, I don't doubt that there is some influence uh, outside of our community that perpetuates it. I, I don't doubt it. Because some of these yeah. conversations are just so ridiculous that it makes me believe <clears throat> that you know, they don't care about the broader perspective. It's about their own, you know, personal gain, or it's not a black person to begin with. It's either parroting a white person or a white person pretending to be black on the internet somewhere. Um, And the sad thing is you can't even tell in pictures anymore. Cause I found out these people are be like dying their face up and (laughs) some crazy (laughs) shit out here. Yeah. (laughs) Drawing on extra lips to make their lips look bigger. All types of weird shit I seen on here. (laughs) So, um, but I think it's important that, you know, we highlight the fact that black male studies is actually taking this conversation bigger because I, I realized in the conversations that you have, they're not able to do that. The the people who are debating against black male studies they're not ever they're never able to take it bigger than their narrow perspective and this narrow idea that feminism actually gave them that they're repeating they so called you know some of these people allegedly don't fuck with white women and want to call out white women's racism but they gleam on or glom on is it glom or gleam i don't know one of them words <laughs> they hang <laughs> on to these white philosophies these white feminist yeah. theories and don't realize that's what they're repeating. Or maybe they just don't care. I don't know. Yeah, I think that that's another aspect of it. So another branch of philosophy is called epistemology, right? And it's basically your ways of how you know things in the world. Um, they got an analogy for everything. God damn. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so with epistemology, the types of epistemology you see these people using is, is a popular one called standpoint epistemology, right? So my, it, and it's, it kind of converges with existentialism. So my personal experience is valuable. It's unique. It's a certain kind of experience um, that's worthy to be considered, right? And nobody's going to disagree with that. But your standpoint epistemology cannot be the basis of all social theory. And so what you see Black male studies scholars disagreeing with this is that it's not an identity-based or standpoint epistemological framework. We, we go to sociology, public health data, social dominance theory, because we have theories that can be falsified. We may be wrong one day. It could be the case in so, under certain conditions that Black men don't have the lowest life expectancy in the country, right? That's not, we're not saying that because I know somebody who died young. You see what I mean? It's not, it's different. It's a different type of character. And so that's, that's the leap in the scope that I think uh, that you're highlighting that people can't make, right? So they'll say, oh, uh, well, as a woman, as a trans person, or as a feminist, or as a black, a black person and a woman and queer, 
right? I have these types of experiences and this follows, you know, from that basis, I should be able to claim X, right? Well, it doesn't work that way if we look at population level data and we can see that, hey, there's certain dynamics, particularly in Western patriarchal capitalist societies with the economic surplus, groups are stratified and experience intergroup conflict in particular types of ways, right? So we, we, we end up drawing on social psychology instead, you know, so it's just a different epistemology. Yeah, uh, you and you're touching on something that I wanted to get into next, which is intersectionality. Okay. So yeah. can you describe what intersectionality is, how it's discussed, and why the people who claim to be intersectionalists beef so much with Black male studies scholars? Oh, okay, yeah. So uh, intersectionality is a framework that's taken from the, uh, that was introduced by Kim Billy Crenshaw. Um, and so Kimberly Crenshaw, I want to say in 1998 and 1989, or yeah, 88 and 89 essay, she kind of introduces this as this framework to understand the multiple axes of oppression. And her general population focus was on Black women um, based on her interpretation of a legal case and her understanding of domestic violence uh racism so she basically wanted to explain how marginalized people within a marginalized group ha- are ignored right their marginalization is not brought to the level of public discussion because it's over that group is overrepresented with the experiences of men um in sociology when it was first tested it was went by something called double jeopardy thesis um but the thing about that uh and when they respond to black male studies scholars is that the theory doesn't have a lot of empirical evidence to it. So there's a lot of cultural ethnographic narratives they have. They can get interviews of uh, people. They can use cultural evidence of representation. But when it comes to empirical population level data, it just doesn't work out that way. Um, So that's one of the main problems that Black male studies scholars have pointed out. And one, uh, Dr. Adebayo and Gugbre, he has uh, argued that Black men are intersectionalities cardinal problem because the way it's formulated you have to view black men in oppositional terms to black women for the theory to take off in the first place right so in order for black women to be marginalized in this unique way black men must be accountable for it Um, and that's where the issue comes in so some authors like bell hooks they have a certain way of explaining it that's a lot more abrasive and then you get some people who are kind of more tacit with that assumption, um, but it all kind of converges around the same set of uh, set of assumptions, right? It's things are more radical or more legitimate to the extent they're feminist, and less legitimate to the to the extent they're not. So, do you think that the beat that they have with black male studies is more rooted in their personal experiences, whether in academia, whether in life, or is it? rooted and i'm asking this genuinely or is it rooted in any possible like challenges that they have with it that could be problematic or aren't considering other circumstances like do they have any actual beefs rooted in fact um well here's the interesting thing so if you so the guiding uh theory in black male studies is something called phallicism phallicism draws on a theory from social dominance theory called the subordinate male target hypothesis. So if you follow the development of the subordinate male target hypothesis in the literature, the contrary theory to it is something called intersectional invisibility. 
Okay, slow so down. People, slow down. Uh-huh, slow down. Uh-huh, you gotta okay, slow down. Okay. I love okay. I love all my scholars and experts, but you move a little okay. fast for some of us. Okay, we ain't. Okay. We, all of us ain't scholarly. I ain't one of them. Right. Um, say those terms for me again. And um, you okay. said subjugation. Say that a word. The one you said. Subordinate male target hypothesis. Subordinate male target hypothesis. Male target hypothesis. And right. it's saying. So the subordinate male target hypothesis argues that there's in uh, stratified Western capitalist societies, there's three type, three domains of violence, three domains of stratification, age-based systems, sex-based systems, and one called arbitrary sets. Now, arbitrary sets see the most lethal forms of violence in general, and they're constra- very pla- uh, has a lot of plasticity. Right. So it could be religious groups, gangs, racial groups, eye color, whatever the, the human mind could construct of us versus them or arbitrary set groups. And between these, these this is where you see genocidal violence happen. Right. So the subordinate male target hypothesis was developed by within a range of scholarship called social dominance theory. And this is from around 95 or so to around 2011. You can see this being developed. And in 2008, intersectional invisibility scholars, they basically admit that the subordinate male target hypothesis is, is correct. They, so they, they say, yes, it's true. Uh, in the case of subordinates, particularly racialized male groups, they're going to be killed by the state more. They're going to be subjected to uh, incarceration more. And the, they're going to bear the brunt of oppression. However, they maintain that because other not what they call non-prototypical bodies within the marginalized group are not recognized by the dominant group as threats. They're still marginalized and invisibilized on that basis, right? So they, they're trying to basically say that the privileged black male, black men get in this case is due to them being recognized as threats and then exterminated. Right. So mm. black male studies scholars has, have argued that this is basically a genocidal logic. Right. I mean, you, you're basically saying they're privileged because they're killed and they're killed because they're privileged. I mean, they, yeah, that doesn't make sense. It it's almost as ridiculous. Is, yeah. it's, 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 it makes me think of when people say you ask about black male privilege and they say, well, their violence, you know, when they're murdered, you see it on TV and there's protests. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm like, but they're dead. So where's the right. privilege in being dead? And they were killed by the right. state. So right. where is the privilege in being killed by the state? By the state. I don't know. I don't know. But this is what they insist. But nevertheless, before they insist this, they concede the subordinate male target hypothesis. So that's what I find so interesting about it within the literature, that they actually, there's a concession here. Uh, even... Uh, with the criticism of intersectionality that has been basically focused on Black women and the experiences of Black women so much that other types of uh, intersectional groups get ignored. They've conceded this to some extent as well. Um, And, you know, you see um, people basically working through this problem. So, um, but basically what Black male study scholars have done is we've drawn on the subordinate male target hypothesis and made a delineation or resisted the delineation made by social dominance theorists. But social dominance theorists, they emphasize the genocidal uh, propensity of arbitrary set group violence, right? These groups are killed. 
And that's true. But these groups of men, because arbitrary set violence usually is perpetrated by men of the dominant group on men of the subordinate group. Um, but these men are also raped by these men. And that's something that social dominance theory kind of fails to connect. So phallicism is a way of uh, denoting how racialized and subjugated uh, groups of men are killed based on arbitrary set violence and subjected to sexual violence at the same time. It's very counterintuitive because it's non-reproductive sexual violence. I um, mean, you can see this going back to slavery, you know? All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.